Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. I'm Adam Lashinsky. I'm a contributing columnist for The Washington Post and a freelance journalist. It's always a pleasure for me to moderate a Commonwealth Club event, but I am really missing that gavel right now. It is my pleasure to introduce Brian Stelter, author of Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the battle for American democracy. Brian is a special correspondent for Vanity Fair, a producer on the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show, and he executive produced the 2020 HBO documentary, After Truth, Disinformation and the Cost of Fake News. I intend for Brian to do the overwhelming majority of the talking today, but first, (laughs) I have three short disclosures and an announcement. My first disclosure (laughs) is that I don't even know if you know this, Brian, but I was a Fox News contributor for the better part of 20 years, a, a paid contributor for much of that time, almost always in the business news group uh, under Neil Cavuto. I was largely shielded from almost everything that you write about in your book, but facts are there and we can we can kick that around as much or as little as you like. Also, uh, earlier this year, Brian and I were both Dornstein Fellows at the Kennedy School uh, of Government. I think it will prove to be one of the most illustrious classes ever with uh, Caitlin Dickinson winning a Pulitzer Prize while we were fellows and now with Brian's book. And I intend to be the laggard of that class. Um, I want to, for my third disclosure, I want to read a a line from uh, Dwight Garner's wonderful review of your book, uh, Brian. He wrote, Stelter has watched a lot of Fox News, nearly as much as anybody alive. In doing so, he has been to borrow a term from Succession, the Murdoch family-inspired HBO series, a national pain sponge. He has been glued to the set, eyes peeled, notebook in hand, so others don't have to be. The reason I love that quote, Brian, is that I watch almost no cable television. Um, (laughs) And uh, I think I maybe represent uh, a lot of people out in America who also don't watch cable television. Nevertheless, (laughs) I found your book riveting, and we can discuss that. Very last thing before I turn it over to you. Today is my father's 92nd birthday, and he's watching, and so I want to wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday. Wow. Very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, Brian, great to see you again. Uh, Let's start at the very very top, at the highest level. Uh, What are you trying to accomplish with this book? (laughs) Uh, What am I trying to accomplish with this book? Uh, I am trying to provide uh, an on-the-record look inside one of the most important media companies in the world. You know, I'm someone who has written about, covered, blogged about Fox News for about 20 years. When I was in college in 2004, I launched a blog that tracked Fox and CNN and MSNBC. And back then, as you know, as a, a longtime contributor on Fox, the networks really covered the same stories. They, they would debate, you know, they, they would take different angles on different stories, but they were mostly covering the same reality. Here we are 20 years later, and and Fox is oftentimes in its own reality, in its own universe, covering its own stories, some of which are made up. And, you know, the most dramatic example of that was in 2020, when Trump lost the election but claimed he won, and then constructed a a world in which he did win, a world that said he might actually get reelected, might stay in power, might somehow pull this out, and that was a Fox world. So uh, basically, uh, you know, I had written about Fox a lot, but... Up until this year, I had to rely on anonymous sources a lot of the time. I wrote a book in 2020 called Hoax, which was largely driven by anonymous sources who said things like, yeah, we don't believe what we say on the air. We just tell the viewers to believe it. And now you have those same quotes on the record because of the Dominion lawsuit against Fox. As some of you know, Dominion Voting Systems sued Fox for defamation uh, after the 2020 election. And because of that lawsuit, so many emails, text messages, and memos were all forced into public view. And you have these incredible quotes from Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, all forced onto the record. Of course, they were never intending for these quotes to be made public. They never wanted to be deposed by lawyers. But because it created this incredible public record, of life inside Fox, how the place works, how the place doesn't work. Um, There's actually some positive things we've learned from these documents that we can talk about. But the point was, 
I thought these documents needed to be turned into a book. Uh, there was so much here. It was so important, but frankly, not very easy to access. You know, you know, Adam, just because there's some lawsuit in Wilmington, Delaware, just because there's a bunch of filings in some court database, it doesn't mean it's actually publicly accessible. And so a lot of the quotes in this book and a lot of the quotes we're going to talk about, they weren't even Googleable. You couldn't find them anywhere until yeah. I wrote this book. So that was my motivation. I had covered Fox for a long time. I had used a lot of anonymous sources, but I felt like for the first time we had an on the record view inside. I guess um, something you said that really interests me, uh, you know, one of the things I don't like about cable television, and I'm not just talking about Fox, is the performative nature of it. It's basically all performative all the time. And what's intriguing about your preamble or, or your your method is that you were you were getting off screen commentary uh, right. by the performers and their bosses <laughs> on their their actual their, their sort of truthful or literal critique of the performance. Is that a valid observation? That is exactly what this is. And it's very, very rare, not just rare when it comes to Fox. I've never seen a major media company exposed in this way. Uh, you know, and it's all because of the legal process, the same processes that are now being applied to Donald Trump, where he's being indicted over and over again. Uh, what we're seeing is accountability for the so-called big lie in lots of different ways, lots of legal ways, through these defamation lawsuits, through shareholder lawsuits against Fox, through these cases against Trump. Uh, what we're seeing as a result of these cases is a lot of discovery, a lot of that legal discovery process. And I have to admit, I didn't know a lot about this world. I've I've been, you know, swept up in a couple lawsuits during my time at CNN. You know, I'd have the support of the CNN lawyers. I'd have to, you know, be deposed once or twice. It's a pretty harrowing experience, you know, when you're under oath and your the other lawyers are trying to trap you sometimes. But I never really had a sense of what it was like to have all your emails and texts and memos and presentations all all dredged up and used in a, in a lawsuit. And, and frankly, it happened to me in a tiny little way with Fox and Dominion. And even that was kind of uncomfortable. I had a couple pages of my emails, a couple hmm. pages of my text messages, rather, hmm. with the head of Fox News PR hmm. that showed up in these public filings. Hmm. And, you know, I write about them in the book because I, I wanted to point out it was uncomfortable just to have two pages of my text swept up. Imagine what it was like for Sean Hannity to have we, all of his messages uh, reviewed. Yeah, by the we, and, and we're we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna dwell at length on Tucker Carlson. I was <laughs> yeah. I, I I sort of did sort of there were there were more there were a few moments in the book where you expressed some degree of sympathy for him as as a human being, and and uh, that that <laughs> that intrigued me. Um, you mentioned just a moment ago that that positive things came out about Fox. What what do you what do you what do you mean? What did yeah, you mean I'll give you an example. And of course, these these were underappreciated in the news coverage at the time when these documents started to be published in February and March of, of this year. You know, reporters understandably focused on some of the sensational, shocking headlines. Tucker Carlson says he hates Donald Trump. You know, a lot of people might remember that headline. Uh, Rupert Murdoch said, we're going to make Trump a non-person. That's what Rupert said after January 6th. And I guess he forgot to follow through. But anyway, <laughs> a lot of those headlines, they were sensational. They got a lot of press. Here's what didn't get a lot of press, but stood out to me. People on the outside, especially liberal critics of Fox, have long looked at the Murdochs and thought, oh, well, they must be uh, in the middle of things. They must be intervening. They must be deciding when to project the presidency. They must be the ones who say, okay, call that state for Trump. Call that state. You know, there was, there's a, a kind of a, honestly, like a liberal conspiracy view of the Murdochs that says they're meddling all the time inside Fox News. And for better or worse, sometimes for the worse, they're really not meddling. Uh, what we see in the messages is that the decision desk, the so-called Fox decision desk that makes projections on election night, was truly, really honestly free of any Murdoch interference. The Murdochs didn't know what the calls were going to be, except for like a minute or two ahead of time. They were, they were not able to intervene, even if they wanted to, which they didn't, they weren't able to intervene. So I, I guess I, I came away from these messages with a little bit of a nuanced view, meaning um, Rupert Murdoch is not the uh, dragon slaying king of all media mogul who's you know messing around on the inside the way that people imagine and the way that he might have been 20 years ago. He is a changed figure, a diminished figure. We can mm. talk about it, but um, that's an example of something I actually viewed as a positive. Like, hey, here's here are here is a process for projecting elections that is not tainted, that, that is not uh, being being meddled with. Now, the flip side of that, and I think this is going to be a theme of our conversation, is that the Murdochs also did not intervene, did not step in 
when lies and defamatory claims were being made on the air for weeks after the election. So here's the way I see it. And you know, let me know, folks listening, if you disagree, I think media owners should not meddle, must not meddle in real reporting, but they must intervene when there's lies being spread. You know, it's the difference between, you know, something real being put out there by your broadcast versus something totally made up. And and so where the Murdochs failed, in my view, is because they didn't intervene. They didn't step in. They didn't put a stop to to the smears, uh, to the to the voter fraud lies. Um, but I think that's the, that's the nuance. They 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 didn't intervene, for example, on election night. They're not the ones pulling the strings uh, behind the scenes. And that can be both a good thing in some cases and a bad thing in other cases. Uh, the only the only thing I quibble with what you just said is I'm not sure for all practical purposes what the difference is between the the owners on the one hand and their corporate agents on the other hand. They're they're, they're more they, they should have been accountable also, right? What, what you're saying is there should be standards and they should be enforced by the bosses, whether the bosses are the executives or the and the Murdochs aren't technically the owners, but they're the they they are controlling owners. Mm-hmm. Right, the controlling power. You know, we saw this uh, recently. Uh, an episode at Niagara Falls before Thanksgiving, this really tragic story is this car out of control, crashing, blowing up, the the two occupants killed. Fox News initially called that a terrorist attack, uh, quoted sources saying it was an attempted terrorist attack. And this this went on for hours, this misinformation. It was pretty scary. It scared millions of people before Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving. And, you know, Fox walked it back, admitted they were wrong, blamed their sources. But there was no system in place for checking those sources. There was no system in place for vetting those anonymous sources ahead of time. CNN, for all its flaws, has a system for checking sources. So does NBC. So does ABC. Fox doesn't always have the same kinds of basic journalism systems and, and checks and balances that other places have. And it's it's one of the distinguishing features. And I, I would argue one of the one of the flaws of the of the place. Um, and then we can, you know, then, then there's the there's the, there's the propaganda talk shows. But in terms of the journalism operation, it it should have more layers and management and, and checks and balances in place to avoid that kind of misinformation. And will you, you you mentioned nuance. The other fascinating nuance about Fox News that I saw firsthand and that you write a little bit about in the book is that there are real journalists at Fox News and there always have been. Number one, explain that if you will. Explain why that is, because that will come as a surprise to some people. And secondly, what what's their what what's their what's what's their state right? What's the state of the journalists at Fox News today? <clears throat> Right, right. Well, you mentioned Neil Cavuto, who has, you know, been able to protect like a little, not a little part, he's been able to protect a a part of Fox News and Fox Business, which is a spinoff channel. And he's been able to keep it as a, a real functioning journalism outfit. He has a program 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 1 p.m. Pacific on Fox News. And then he also has programs on the Fox Business Network that are not MAGA propaganda, are not, you know, the pro-Trump fluff that you see other hours. And he's been able to preserve his hours, his time slots. Uh, Brett Baer is another figure who, to, to, to a large degree, has been able to do that. Um, there are journalists like Trey Inks, the war correspondent, doing exceptional work in Israel and in Gaza. Uh, but I, I think about Fox the following way. It's multiple things that live uncomfortably together in the same house. There's a relatively small news operation that's getting smaller. There's a really big opinion operation that's getting bigger. There's also a lifestyle brand, an entertainment brand that's suffused throughout all of this. You know, they have documentaries and they have reality shows and they make the show Cops now. Like, There's a lot of just entertainment stuff Mm -hmm. uh, because Fox is not just a news brand. It's a way of life, but it's an identity for its fans. Um, but when it comes to the journalism, I think what's what's sad to see is that the the news part of Fox has been shrinking. People like Shep Smith, Chris Wallace, Carl Cameron, other journalists have been leaving over the years, and they're rarely replaced in a in a prominent way. Why is the news side shrinking? Why is the opinion side growing? Well, I think it's reflective of what's happening to the Republican Party in the United States as well. A move away from a kind of shared reality where um uh, you know, there's gathering of information and then a debate about the information. Fox is much less now covering the news and much more complaining about others covering the news, <laughs> talking about how others are covering the news, talking about what they wish the news were as opposed to what the news was. And, you know, I know some people are going to say, well, duh, Brian, of course, it's always been a right wing operation. Yes, it's always had a conservative bent, but it's now bending in a direction that's not really right or left, but it's away from what is real and yep. much more toward what 
that is hoped to be real. Um, you know, whether that's anti-Biden, anti-Democrat, whether the, a great example, quick, quick example, 2022 midterm elections. Uh, if you heard of that, about the idea of a red wave, a red tsunami, Fox was cl- claiming for weeks that the Republicans were going to swamp the Democrats. It was going to be this incredible, successful night for the Republican Party. And as with many elections we've seen in recent years, Trump hurt the Republican Party. There was no red wave, um, maybe a trickle. So the Fox audience was misinformed. The Fox audience was done a disservice, not by the news side, really, but by all the talk shows that overwhelm the news side, that, that tell viewers every hour what they want to have be true. Yep. Um, it's like my kids who are, I'm afraid they're going to come in any minute from school. Like my kids are going to, you know, dream up what they're, they're going to get for Christmas. Uh, but I've got to manage their expectations. Like I, you know, there's, a, <laughs> there's something that's missing at Fox about, um, because in my view, it's become less and less tethered to reality. And again, we saw that in the most dramatic way in 2020, with these hosts who just could not accept Trump's loss, could not accept that they lost. And so they started to tell a different story instead about how maybe he won, or maybe it was stolen, or maybe it was rigged, or maybe this and maybe that, which is what led to the defamation suits. So let's go from there to one of the chief characters in in your book. His mug is in the lower right-hand corner of the the (laughs) book cover. You you have uh, behind you Tucker Carlson. Sort of surprisingly or shockingly, I'm not sure what the right adverb is, he was not one of those hosts who believed that Trump won, um, as we now know, or as we, as, as we knew when, with the Dominion suit. So uh, tell, us, tell us what you learned about Tucker yeah. Carlson and why he's important to the story. Tucker is a huge part of the story because he was the face of Fox News for about five years. He personified... Fox and also the new right, uh, this isolationist, um, uh, you know, um, gosh, what, what are the terms we use for, for what he represents? You know, um, I, you know, to me, it's like, it's a burn it all down approach. It's a Armageddon at the doorstep. Um, you know, the, the, the country's doomed and it's all because of those evil liberal perverts. Um, he told a story every night that was so dark, so disturbing. And over time, he really seemed to believe it. And the story wasn't really about Donald Trump. Uh, you know, during the Trump years, Tucker barely talked about Trump. He didn't want to talk about Trump. He, I, in my view, he, he thought he was better than Trump. He knew better. He could sell Trump's policies better than Trump. Tucker was always more interested in Trump the ideas versus Trump the man. And, you know, if you think about the Trump years and how much it was defined by his narcissism, that's interesting. But Tucker was focused on the ideas, anti-immigration ideas, uh, ideas about uh, America's role in the world. And Tucker sold Trump's ideas really, really well. He is an effective salesman for what Trump calls America first. Tucker was flying high. Uh, you know, in the Trump years, his stock rose. He had Trump, you know, wrapped around his finger, so to speak. There was an incredible night where, Trump, you know, Tucker's on the air urging Trump not to go ahead and, and bomb uh, Iran or Syria. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a couple of different episodes like this. And, and Trump listens and Trump takes the counsel. I mean, Tucker Carlson was literally driving American foreign policy. So he's really important from that perspective, how influential he was in the Trump years and how he had a connection to the base like no one else at Fox. And then he's significant in another way. He's significant in terms of a, a lesson, uh, a story that's happened over and over and over again in television of Icarus flying too close to the sun, of someone getting too high on their own supply, uh, getting too um, uh, believing. You know, getting, I, I think the quote I have from Rupert in the book was, he got too big for his boots. <laughs> you know, And that is a story we have seen over and over again in TV and Hollywood and media. It's very much the Tucker Carlson story. He he puffed himself up. He believed he was invincible. He convinced other people that he was irreplaceable. Yep. In fact, he was very vulnerable. And frankly, the only surprise is that they didn't can him sooner. Well, and in, in, in fact, we've, we've learned over the years that nobody is irreplaceable in, in the Fox News empire, not even Roger Ailes, who, was, who, was, who came the closest <laughs> to being irreplaceable, right? Talk but can about- I say on the, election, on the election front, though, it's important that Tucker was not all in on the big lie. Mm-hmm. He did push back. In fact, mm-hmm. Dominion viewed him as a really strong witness for their case. So by April 2023, Dominion's about to go to trial against Fox. All these emails and texts had already been published, well, a lot of them. And, and Tucker was going to take the stand. He was going to be the, the third witness after Rupert Murdoch. He was, Dominion viewed him as really valuable to their case. Why? Because Tucker Carlson went on television in November of 2020 and dismantled Sidney Powell, the Trump-aligned mm-hmm. lawyer who was spinning lies about voter fraud. Tucker Carlson basically said, 
we wish these claims were true, but they're not. We've mm. got no evidence. Sidney Powell, give us the evidence. And then behind the scenes, he actually worked to get the Trump White House to disavow Sidney Powell. So Tucker played a role in kind of getting to the truth about uh, the election. But, and I think here's the important part. Yes, he sometimes uh, disavowed those voter fraud lies. Yes, he expressed skepticism behind the scenes about voter fraud lies. But he, he, he believed he had to be lie curious. He felt like he had to be lie curious. He had to be open to the big lie. He had to <laughs> act like he was um, open to the possibility. Why? Because he had to appease his audience. He had to make his audience feel like he was on their side. His whole worldview is us versus them. And so he had to act like he was with his viewers who wanted to believe Trump won, who wanted to believe it was stolen. Even though he knew better, he had to act like he was into it. And he's still doing that today. Like he's still this year will make comments about, gosh, you know, it seems like seems like it would have been a miracle for, for Biden to beat Trump. Was it a miracle? Like he, he plays, he's a very smart guy who plays dumb in order to appeal to his viewers. So, so I, want I think that's you, pretty gross. I want you to address his motivation because like Trump, he's a, he's a rich kid who had lots of privileges and a, a fairly easy entry into the, into the professional yeah. world. He was even a very successful magazine feature writer, which in among journalists mm -hmm. is that, you know, that not everyone can be a successful magazine feature writer. But unlike Trump, there's no evidence that he was picked on by anybody or that he, he had a natural attraction to grievances. So why and how did he become, did this this guy become the voice, as you, as you put it, of, of white supremacists and, you know, the, the angry white men in America? Right. Well, I do think his radicalization mirrors the radicalization of a, a big chunk of the GOP. And in some ways he's also contributed to that. Obviously he's on TV every night. He's, he was far more influential than your average Republican congressman in, in terms of um, the way that, that he communicated to the base and influenced the base's priorities. Um, you know, so you're, you're asking me what happened to Tucker. And I, mm -hmm. I think the answer is, is partly that um, I guess what comes to my mind is the echo chamber. And it's something that we can, we we've all experienced to some degree. I know I experienced it to some degree. I've experienced it lately with regards to the war, but I experienced it in politics and other world areas too. If you only, if you only live on and read and watch and hear what you already believe to be true, and you close yourself off and close yourself off and close yourself off to any other possibilities, um, if you close yourself off to the light and you look at and you face only the darkness, I mean, Tucker was in a proverbial cave where he was only hearing. Um, the worst about America, the worst about Democrats, the worst about the cities, the worst about liberals. Um, it, I think it really, it can really, it can really screw up your, it can fry your brain. Like it, I should have said that in the book, it can fry your brain. You know, you end up saying things that are just totally bananas and untrue because you're not interacting with the real world anymore. You're only interacting with this thing you've created in your imagination of your enemy. And I know I say this from someone as someone who was a Tucker target, you know, he would call me a eunuch on television and, and, and make fun of my appearances on CNN and claim I was the, the puppet of, of the head of CNN. And like, it was interesting because I had known him almost 20 years at that point. So he knew me personally. He, we would text, he would call, like we had an actual relationship, but then the caricature of me on television that he would, you know, was totally different. And so that's why I say he was like, he was in a cave. He was in this dark place where, um, uh, where, where the, the, you know, the, the, the other party was not wrong, wrong headed, was not foolish, but was evil. And that's, again, that's what's happened to a lot of our politics. It's not just our Carlson. Um, so I don't know if I'm fully answering, but that's, yeah, that's, no, where, that's what I, that, that's the direction that I saw him heading basically. You, you are. And, uh, forgive me if I missed this, but did, did you try to interview him for the book? Um, you know, it's complicated because, uh, you know, yes, when he when he was ousted, when he was ousted by Fox, uh, I did text him and reach out. But I, I suspected he, he wouldn't or couldn't respond. And and he didn't. You know, the way these things happen and it happened to me when I was booted by CNN last year for a while, you're in this kind of limbo where you can't really engage, where, you know, you're, um, I don't want to say silenced, but, you know, you got to gotta lay low and let the lawyers work it out. I think Tucker was in that phase um, in April and maybe, you know, maybe a little bit later. But what he, what, he, what I did do is I spoke to his, some, of his, some of his former producers, some of his former staffers, people that are still in his inner circle, so that I felt like I was hearing their version of events. And, you know, you mentioned a little bit of sympathy. I don't know if this is a sympathetic point about Tucker, but I was really struck to hear that his staffers worried he'd be assassinated. 
you know, that was like a very real fear. This mm-hmm. this man's becoming so prominent. He has millions of fans, but also millions of critics. He was becoming Trump-like. I mean, Tucker Carlson gets talked about as a candidate, as a presidential candidate all the time. Uh, he was, you know, Trump was flirting with him about VP recently. So there was this real fear behind the scenes that this could go really wrong, that, that, that Tucker could be endangered. And I do wonder, again, if that's part of the cave about him retreating inward. Uh, he moved out of D.C., he put his house in the market. He, he now lives uh, in two compounds, one in Florida and one in Maine. Like He really retreated from what I view as the diversity of the real world. And um, you know, I, I argue in the book that might have been a factor as well in his radicalization. Um, there's something that's, been, that's bugged me for a long time that I'd love for you to explain uh, about cable news and about cable news's influence. I think the highest rated cable television shows are seen by a few million people each night. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and less successful shows by a tiny fraction of that. So how and why <laughs> do these programs that are seen by a few million Americans each day yeah. have the impact that they have? Yeah. Well, uh, let's, I'll, I'll get personal and use my old CNN show as an example. Great. On a good week, Reliable Sources had about a million viewers. On a bad week, you know, 600,000. When there was an emergency or an earthquake or some panic, you know, maybe 2 million on a really, really, you know, uh, urgent moment. So Walter Um, Cronkite on the CBS Evening News, this was not. No, no, exactly. Walter Cronkite, 20, 30, 40 million viewers, right? Uh, but but here's here's that why that one million matter. On, on a typical week, let's say a million viewers watched a single show. Um, that million is, first of all, it is uh, overrepresented by lawmakers and aides and members of the media okay. and influencers mm-hmm. and, you know, and CEOs. It's, it over-indexes on people who make media elsewhere, people who make decisions elsewhere, People who, you know, would, you know, a talk radio host in St. Louis who then does a segment based on what he heard on CNN, right? A, uh, you know, Fortune 500 company that decides to make a, make a sponsorship decision based on whether they hear this or there. Um, you know, I think basically cable news over indexes in that way. It, it's it's it literally way above it, its weight. It literally is an echo then. It echoes is what you're saying. <laughs> it, it does. And, and you also feel that on social media, right? So clips from uh, Tucker Carlson's show at 3 million viewers a night uh, were then shared by tens of millions on social media, mostly by people who are outraged by it. And then all of a sudden he's in Stephen Colbert's monologue and you start to see how the cable news agenda is driving the national agenda more broadly. You know, this may not be a good thing, but at the White House, you know, there's a you know, television sets with four boxes usually: CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and either News Nation or CNBC. That that so-called quad, right? That's that's what people uh, on Capitol Hill are seeing all day. It's what people in the White House are seeing all day. You know, I, I think uh, t- cable news in particular, it has that immense amount of power because of the echo effect. And um, that's not definitely not always a good thing, I but understand. it is, I think, the reality. And then one other f- fact I'd la- yeah. layer on top of this, which is it's not always the same million who are watching. It's not always the same 3 million who are watching, okay. right? Yep. So cumulatively, CNN has 50, 60 million viewers who see it at some point during the month. Same for Fox. So cumulatively, these networks are reaching a lot of people. And, and I've actually, I've seen it anecdotally. Um, you know, when you and I were, were at Harvard together, when I'm traveling, I've been out of CNN more than a year and I still have people almost every day uh, say either I loved you on CNN past tense or the freaky part is I, I love you me. on CNN present yeah, yeah. tense, like yeah, yeah. I'm still there. And yeah. that is the, that's like, it's always been a kind of a light bulb moment for me to realize the staying power that television still has and let's be candid about it. Mostly among older viewers, mostly among folks who've watched for decades. There are not a lot of new 25-year-olds being born, turning on CNN, getting hooked mm. on it every day. Mm. Fox News' average viewer is about 70 years old. So this is very much uh, you know, programming for an older audience, but a very loyal audience. I want to... Um... I want to get to some of the specifics from your book. And it's it's funny, you're talking about the power of television. I, I want to encourage anybody listening, watching. Uh, you wrote a really good book, Brian, because what you did was you took a lot of things that were out there in the in the in the public sphere and you you drilled down and you narrated and you added very nicely. And um, one I'd like you to talk about is you dis- you discussed and explained how the big lie was premeditated both 
in the White House and at Fox News. And I'd I'd love it if you'd explain that a little bit. What stood out to me the most when I started to reconstruct these events were the few days in November of 2020 when this all went down. You know, because I think a lot of people listening remember, November 7th, 2020, it was the end of election week. We had an entire week, remember, uh, the presidential election? We had to go on for like four days and nights not knowing who the next president was going to be. It looked like Biden, but he wasn't projected until Saturday morning. And there were spontaneous street parties in New York and Washington and SF and LA and elsewhere. You know, there was all these, these celebrate, celebrations. There was also on Fox, you know, a real, a real depression. And what happens the next day, the very next day, Sunday, November 8th, is that a, a new story starts starts to be told. Right? An alternative reality starts to be born. And that alternative reality says, no, Trump didn't lose. He actually won. Or it was stolen from him. The elections were rigged. The voting machines were rigged. The machines were hacked. Something went wrong. And he's going to be able to overturn it. And he's going to go to court. And he's going to become the winner. And the Supreme Court's going to back him. And he's going to stay in power. And, and he's going to be the, the president. And you know, some people bought all into that. Some people just maybe halfway in. Some people just wanted to believe it because their hearts were hurt by his loss. Um, but the point is, the big lie wasn't just you know, created. Trump didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm going to go out and say that it was Dominion's fault. I'm going to blame this random voting machine company. I'm going to go out publicly and say that they stole the election from me and that I actually won. Um, he didn't just dream that up one morning. It was it was made to happen. It was made to happen by Fox. And and the way we know that, thanks to the Dominion documents, we know that on the day Biden is projected to be the next president, a woman in Minnesota, a random woman who's a big Trump fan, sends a long, rambling, conspiratorial email to Sidney Powell. Uh, again, Sidney Powell, the Trump-aligned lawyer. In this long, rambling email, this woman, Marlene Bourne, she even admits some of these ideas are wackadoodle. She says she hears things from ghosts. She says she's internally decapitated. You read this email. She says Roger Ailes is still alive, who, who had died six years earlier, or three years earlier. Anyway, anyone reading this email knows it's BS, uh, knows just to delete it. But instead of deleting it, Sidney Powell forwards it to Fox host Maria Bartiromo. Uh, and Maria Bartiromo forwards it to Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son. So... Why does that matter? It matters because Maria Bartiromo's guest on Sunday, November 8th, is Sidney Powell. And all of a sudden, on November 8th, Maria Bartiromo looks down and starts reading from the email almost word for word. This random conspiratorial email with no basis in reality, with a bunch of lies about Dominion, about Nancy Pelosi, she starts reading it out loud, Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell goes on, smears Dominion, scares bejesus out of viewers. And that's the beginning. That's where it all starts. Like that is the, the beginning of the domino effect because it's, it's, it's one thing for Trump. Remember, you know, Trump goes out and says, I won the election. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, here's how I know it was stolen. Yeah, to start making the case. Yeah, you have to, in order to be a victim, you have to have a villain. You have to have, a, if, in order to say you were robbed, you have to have a thief. Mm-hmm. And what Maria Barromo did that morning was she gave him a villain. She gave him a thief. Uh, and it was Dominion. And it was also Smartmatic, another voting company that's also now suing Fox. You know, the story became pretty convoluted and, you know, you could choose your own adventure a little bit. But uh, here's the, the point of that timeline. November 8th uh, is when this starts on Fox. And November 12th is when Trump starts smearing Dominion. So, and, and that's, by the way, the same night Sean Hannity repeated the lies. So you have this window of time where it could have gone differently where Trump could have accepted his defeat with grace, uh, where he could have moved on. But instead, he was watching his favorite channel, getting these ideas, uh, filling up his head, and then he decides to run with it. And I, you know, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but there are good people who lived all across this country, who logged online, who bought plane tickets, who decided to go to Washington, D.C. for a rally on January 6th, because they were watching this stuff on TV. And, you know, some of them then made criminal decisions at the Capitol that day. But, it, you know, they weren't doing it, you know, for no reason. They were doing it because of what they were hearing on TV from their trusted sources. And you, um, this, this brings up probably what I think is one of the more the most interesting existential questions you, you, you raise in the book. And I'm going to call it the, the, the cause and effect, the chicken and the egg, the supply and demand question, you know, for, for, for years, I will defend the fraternity, Brian. People say, well, it's you it's you people in the media. And I'll say, no, no, no. By and large, we don't wake up in the morning and say, here's what we here's what we think the news should be. We report the news. By and large. That's of course there's there's bad actors. But 
let's cut right to the heart of the matter on Fox News. What is it? Is it, you know, do they, are they causing it or are they reflecting what the, what a certain segment of the country believes? Because Fox is multiple things in one, the answer is, is a multiple choice answer. Yes, right. Uh, there are, you know, journalists at Fox on the decision desk who accurately call the election. First, mm. they called the state of Arizona for Biden, which really pissed off Trump and pissed off his fans and caused a revolt against Fox. As a result of that revolt, you had Fox staffers, including the talk show host, panicking, saying, pull it back. We're, we're angry in our audience. Our audience doesn't want to hear the truth. And all of that, of course, is the preamble to Maria Bartiromo and Sean Hannity telling this story about Dominion because they're reacting to the truth really hurt. Viewers hated hearing the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth that the news side provided. So the talk show hosts, they came up with something else. Um, I think at the end of the day, though, you know, if you were to, again, thinking about my kids, if they're playing with their Play-Doh and they're smushing all the different colors together, what's the dominant color that's going to come through? On Fox, if you smush it all together, what you're going to get is a, a propaganda network. Because yes, there are some, some journalists doing good work. Yes, there are some writers who are nonpartisan. There are some writers who don't care about, but the, but Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Greg Gutfeld, Jesse Waters, those are the highest rated shows by far. They are the far right talk shows. They are not in, in, in engaging in the news business. They're using the language of journalism to demean journalism. You know, at the end of the day, if we boiled it all down to the pot, that's what we would get. We would get an operation that exists to destroy Democrats and elect Republicans. And I just want to try a slightly different angle on it and then, then we'll move on, which is there's a, there's, a, there's a school of thought that says whatever you think about Donald Trump, the reason he has been successful is that he speaks to a, a segment of the population, a rather large segment of the population, to their grievances, to, to simplify mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So is it possible that even if everything you say is true, what you just said is true about Fox – that they too are speaking to an audience that that believes what they're saying and not just because they're saying it. Yes, 100%. And that's why Fox deserves scrutiny and study and observation. Sure. Yeah, good. Uh, because it is for 25 plus years speaking to an audience that otherwise feels ignored. Now, I, I could sit here and argue that they're not ignored. I could sit here and argue that, that the grievances are, are, are fall apart under a little bit of scrutiny. I could, I could sit here and argue, that, you know, yada, yada, yada. But it's true. It's true. They they feel like, as the a great book by Arlie uh, uh, Hochschild uh, wrote, strangers in their own land, right? They feel like they are strangers in their own land. And they feel like Fox speaks to them like other outlets do not. Uh, yep. And I would just, you know, add one asterisk to that, which is they might feel that way in part because they're being lied to all the time. And, you know, I, you know I don't, I'm not trying to go over my skis here, but if you're told on Fox every day that the rest of the media is fake, if you're told on Fox every day that the elites are out to get you, if you are told every day on Fox that the government does nothing right ever and that they're actually just a bunch of perverts in D.C., if you're told every day that the country is stacked against you, the deck is stacked against you, you're going to internalize that. And you're going to you're going to walk with you. You're, you're going to carry that with you. And um, unfortunately, you know, I, I see that firsthand very vividly in the attacks against the media. Um Donald Trump wasn't the first person in the Republican Party to try to bash the media, right? Spiro Agnew was doing it decades ago. Um, uh, Newt Gingrich, Rush Limbaugh. Trump perfected it, right? And he, he did it in yeah. the most um, severe way. But for decades now, the Fox base, the GOP base, has been told over and over again that the media is out to get them. The media hates them, and the media is out to get them. And, uh, you know, I, there's, I don't know if there's any, any amount of work the actual media can do to reverse that at this point. Um, you, I might call it brainwashing, uh, but it's happened. It's, it's very real and, uh, it's very hard to counter. And I'll just add to this. There's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, uh leaders around the world who are bashing the media. The president of Mexico is, is a prominent example. Yeah. And, uh, it must be very easy to say, well, uh, leaders in the United States do it. Ba the, the cradle right. of democracy, bastion of democracy. Exactly. One more, I want to ask you about one more person, uh, and then I'm going to go to questions from, from the audience. And that is, I pay fairly careful attention, but I hadn't seen so clear an analysis as yours on your thesis of how James Murdoch could could take control of the empire yeah. after Rupert passes. Could you discuss that for a moment? Totally. So, you know, if if Fox right now is a network of lies, to borrow the book's title, if if much of the programming is 
is not tethered to reality and not journalism-based, but is instead this kind of far-right mixture of resentment and grievance and, and distortion and, and, and Trump, Trump noise. If that's the case now, it doesn't have to be that way. It can change. And, and that's why the James Murdoch angle is interesting. Uh, right now, Fox is controlled by Rupert and Lachlan, uh, the father and son. Rupert's officially chairman emeritus. He's trying to elevate his son, Lachlan, to say, hey, I want Lachlan to be in charge even after I die. Rupert Murdoch, uh, you know, right now still controls the company because he has four votes in what's known as the Murdoch Trust. And then his four adult children have one vote each. Lachlan gets a vote. James gets a vote. Elizabeth and Prudence get a vote. Uh, so right now there's eight votes. That means Rupert wins. In the event of his death, there are four votes, which means the four adult children have some decisions to make. And anything could happen. Uh, this is very much like HBO Succession. This is what Succession is, is, is premised on. It's this battle for control by the adult siblings. Will they, um, will they sell off parts of the company as News Corps and Fox Corps? Will they spin it off? Will they take it private? Will they, will, will they, will they change its direction? Those are all open questions. Lachlan is more conservative, doesn't really like Trump, but he doesn't really care about politics at all. He just wants to run the business. He might not even want to run the business. Maybe he wants to sell it. But right now, Lachlan's in charge. James is on the outside. James, the more liberal son, he would say centrist. Uh, it's on the outside. And he is disgusted by Fox News. He thinks it's poison. He hates what it's become. He has a very clear vision for what he wants it to be. He wants it to be much more toward the center. He, he would dispense with some of the propaganda hosts who are there now. Um, so the, the question becomes, really, in the event of Rupert's death, what happens? What power struggle happens? Is the Fox News ball up for grabs? <laughs> if so, can James grab it? He can't grab it himself. He would need at least, you know, he would, he would need his sisters. His he would sister need both his sisters. sisters, you're saying. Yeah, he would, he, would need, he would need a three-on-one unless, again, there's some other sort of deal that's struck where Lachlan goes and takes this ball and James takes that ball. I mean, here's the thing about it. It's so... So many different combinations could happen. There are so many different versions of this that are possible that I, I think James doesn't know. No one knows for sure. Yeah. But it's a very interesting question because it just it opens the mind to the idea that like Fox News doesn't have to be a 24-7 right-wing talk show about Democrats being, you know, evil pedophiles. Like it could be something else. Like that Fox News could be something else in the hands of someone else, James yeah. Murdoch. All of the steps that have to, all things that have to happen for that to be made real, who knows? We got about 20 minutes left. I'm going to go to questions from the audience. There's many. Uh, so maybe, maybe uh, try to uh, give us short, give us short answers. Yes. Brian, um, now that you have the actual transcripts on the Fox record during the Dominion lawsuit, is there anything from your earlier books that you would edit or change? Great question. Um, edit anything? You know, I would, I would, go, I would go back to hoax in 2020, and I would add on the record support for for some of what was yep. said in the book. Uh -huh. um, you know, for example, there was one uh, part of the book that was of, of hoax, which came out during the pandemic in 2020, that was contested at the time by uh, by the I think it was the the DOJ. It described a meeting between Rupert Murdoch and then Attorney General Bill Barr, and there was a suggestion that maybe Bill Barr went up there on Trump's behalf and told Murdoch about a Fox commentator that Trump hated and that Trump wanted removed, wanted, wanted, wanted ousted. And there was a denial. There was a denial of that claim at the time. What was fascinating to me was that when Rupert Murdoch was deposed by Dominion, Rupert was asked about my reporting and essentially said it was true. He didn't use the word true. He said, well, we had already decided to make that change. Like he, he basically like endorsed the reporting, which I was quite happy to see. Um, yeah. There's nothing better than <laughs> sure you, you know were. having having someone under oath uh, yep. confirm or back up your reporting. Yeah, you know, because Rupert Murdoch never gives interviews. He never talks yep. to the press. Yep. So yep. having him depose is the only way to ever get in his head. So uh, no, I look. I, I think hoax held up pretty well. I think what I've learned in my my journalism life, and maybe this is true for you, Adam, is things are always worse on the inside than you know on the outside. Yeah. Things are always crazier. Things are always nuttier. Like, so if anything, I, I would just go back and I'd pump up the language and I would make it yeah, more yeah. dramatic because yep, I get it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I found that at CNN too. Like things are always like, you know, the initial reports are never the full story. Yeah. The, the human <laughs> drama. Um, yeah. Brett Baer will be speaking to the Commonwealth Club next week. What would, what question would you ask him? You know, I'd be forward looking. I'd be thinking about 2024. I think uh, Fox needs to be held uh, to uh, high standards for the 2024 election. 
um, in the debates, in the coverage, and especially in the projections in the, in the election nights. You know, the same guy that ran the decision desk in 2020, Arnon Mishkin, is expected to be in charge again in 2024. Mm. That's a good sign. Yeah, mm. That means a professional is going to be holding the, 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 the wheel of the ship. Um, but Brett Baer plays an essential role in keeping, you know, what's left of Fox's news credibility intact. Mm-hmm. And 2020 was hard for him. You, you all will read in the book how much he struggled with that pressure from the audience to stop saying Biden won <laughs> and, and stop, you know, uh, you know, so he's going to be under that same kind of scrutiny again. And it'd be interesting to hear him talk about, you know, how he approaches it. How does mm. he, does he, does he feel like he is um, stuck or torn between his audience and, and his reporting? Mm-hmm. And, you know, does he, is, is that, is, cause that's, that's how it looks from afar, but maybe, you know, it'd be interesting to hear how he says that in his own words. Uh, someone asks, how do you think the guilty pleas by Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis will impact Fox and the Dominion lawsuit? And I think the question's interesting the way it's worded, yeah. because I'm interested, of course, in how it affects Trump, but they rightly ask you how it affects Fox. Right. We have had these guilty pleas, you know, in these indictments. To me, Fox's fingerprints are all over these indictments because all of the misinformation Trump consumed, all of his mendacity, it all leads back to what he was consuming. You know, it's all about the information diet at the end of the day. And his information diet was really heavy on Fox. Even on January 6th, what channel was he watching? He was watching Fox. Um, so, you know, it, it's notable as we think about his mindset, his state of mind. What did he really believe? You know, um, it, all, it all does come back to that. So with regards to the guilty pleas thus far, um, I think to see the big lie unravel in the courts, to have Dominion force Fox to pay almost $800 million as a penalty, to have shareholder lawsuits against Fox still pending, to have the Smartmatic case still pending against Fox. Rupert Murdoch was deposed this week in the Smartmatic case, which is an even stronger case than Dominion's. So when it settles, it's going to settle for more than $800 million. Excuse, so me, Brian, why, those... excuse me, Brian, why is the Smartmatic case a, a, better, a better case? Smartmatic is a stronger case. Stronger, in, well, here, here's, the, here's my argument about it. Smartmatic only operated in one county in the United States in 2020. It was L.A. County. And nobody thinks L.A. County was was tipping toward Trump, right? So when when Fox hosts came on the air and when Fox guests went on the air and talked about Smartmatic and blamed Smartmatic, it was so unhinged from reality because Smartmatic barely even had a role in the election. So basically, because the Smartmatic lawyer can get up there and say what I just said, he feels like he wins the case in a heartbeat. You know, like there's he feels that there's no real case to even have um, because the facts are so clear. Uh, that's why it's likely Fox will try to settle. Um, they'll try to get rid of this one and they'll have to pay a lot of money. But I think the, the point here is the, the penalties are huge. The financial penalties are huge. These guilty pleas, the embarrassment, the public shame and ridicule and pressure all does matter. And even if, you know, you know no matter what happens with Trump. Um, and so I think it has affected Fox around the edges as well. Fox doesn't let Trump call in anymore. They insist he be on camera. He can't call in in his sweatpants. Uh, they insist he not come on live for interviews. They make him tape ahead of time, literally because they fear who he might defame. Like they are literally, for legal reasons, uh, restricting his live appearances. Now, he is on next week with Hannity, next Tuesday in a town hall. And that's going to be another interesting one. Is it live or not? I bet you it'll be taped because they fear the legal exposure. So, you know, we think about the guilty pleas. What I'm thinking to myself is Fox wants to limit its own exposure. I quote a source in the book saying, Lachlan Murdoch just wants to minimize headaches and maximize profits. So if that's the rubric, um, Trump is a headache and he's going to want to minimize the headaches. Uh, A friend of mine emailed me before our talk. He said, ask Brian what specific tactics are needed and by which constituencies to put the megaphone back in the hands of democratic forces. Right. Democratic forces, meaning pro-democracy, uh, not not the party, but pro-democracy. And this is where I'm critical of Lachlan Murdoch. And, uh, you know, I, I have reason to believe this gets under his skin. That's good. Um, <clears throat> Lachlan Murdoch has a responsibility as a CEO of Fox, the, the leader of Fox, just like board member Paul Ryan, to defend democracy, small d democracy, to stand up against this authoritarian drift that we're seeing. Yesterday, Donald Trump on True Social uh, suggested that uh, the government should punish Comcast for owning MSNBC. He implied that MSNBC engages in illegal political activity 
when all it's doing is free speech. And he suggested that under a Trump administration 2.0, he would use the powers of his office to uh, to punish Comcast. That that should that should Lachlan Murdoch should should wake up at night terrified of that, because if 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 if, if President Biden talked that way, if Democrats in the future talked that way, you know, uh, talked about getting real running Fox out of business because of what it does, you know, we we don't want to live in that country. Lachlan Murdoch does not want to live in that country. So I my view is he should oh, be although louder. I, I believe I read in your book that he doesn't live in this country. Well, yeah, country? he does spend a lot of his time in Australia. That's true. I was about to add that he does spend a lot of time down under. Uh, but the company is based in the U.S. He's got responsibilities to us I take your in the point, U.S. Yes. Um, you know, I'm not expecting him to raise his voice in defense of democracy, but I think the rest of us can, the rest of us are, and there's lots of efforts uh, underway that have an impact. You know, I, I mentioned at the end of the book, uh, these protests outside Fox every week, there's an effort right now to challenge Fox's FCC license for its broadcast station in Philly. Now, that broadcast station, I love it, Fox 29. I watch it all the time. My wife used to work there. It has no connection to Fox News. You know, it's a great, you know, the station to watch the Eagles games. Fox 29 has nothing to do with Fox News, but Fox owns it. And Fox has to get a government license. So you've got these former Fox executives speaking out against the Murdochs, challenging the license in Philly in order to punish Fox News for the big lie. There's all of the that's just an example of one of many efforts to to try to to hold Fox's feet to the fire. And uh, I think cumulatively, these efforts do matter. Uh, an audience member asks, is there anything that you miss about being on cable news? That's a fun question. I don't know if I've been asked that before. Um, anything I miss? So, you know, I got fired August 2022. Um, it was something I kind of saw coming. So um, I was grateful to have time to sign off on the air, do it my own way. And, uh, you know, I got to be a stay-at-home dad, which was a gift that I didn't know I was I was going to get and didn't know I was going to enjoy so much. It's It's mostly been this real blessing. I don't really miss being in the middle of it all that often, but I do miss it every once in a while. I miss it when there's a really big breaking news event. And I feel like the channel, whatever channel I'm watching, I feel like they're not doing a great job <laughs> because I'm the kind of guy who is emailing the control room, trying to help when there's breaking news, trying to do this and that. Like I'm the kind of guy, one night, I live out in New Jersey and one night the remnants of Hurricane Ida were coming up the eastern seaboard and there were the horrible floods, New Jersey and New York. Y'all might remember the subways flooded, Newark flooded, the, the, the 50 people died as there was all this flooding. So this was happening in the middle of the night and there were no reporters for Don Lemon to go to. And so I grabbed my camera. I went out in the backyard where it's pouring rain and I started doing live shots with Don. Midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. We were the only channel live in the middle of the night on the East Coast covering what was actually a historic flooding event. And, uh, you know, I, I went to bed at 4 a.m., got up again at 6, went back on again from my basement, from my from my backyard doing these live shots. That's what I really loved about cable news is those moments. They don't happen very often, but when they do, they're really uh, intense and interesting. And they happen, by the way, I mean, they happen every day right now with the war in Israel and Hamas. So um, for, for me, they didn't happen very often, but they were they were intoxicating. Uh, so that, that I, I guess I miss once in a while, but um, less than I expected. And what I really enjoy now is, um, is getting a broader, a broader media diet, like meaning watching a little bit less TV, reading a little bit more, uh, reading long form more often. Um, I, I think I have a better media diet now. You said um, you, you make a, a passionate case for what cable television does that, that's good. Yeah. Um, a moment ago, you were talking about protesting the license, Fox's license in Philadelphia. I think what you're referring yeah. to for people who don't follow the industry as carefully as you do is that broadcast networks need government licenses and cable networks do not. Is right. that correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, Fox News is think... not regulated by the government, but Fox Broadcast is. So that that And that has ramifications in all sorts of ways, including seemingly superficial things like like obscenities uh, on air. You yeah. can on cable, you can't on broadcast. So should we... Uh, Two-part question. Should we regulate cable uh, cable news? And do you think cable news is a net positive for our society? Hmm. Uh, I don't think it's possible to to, inst to put a regulatory regime in place anymore. People talk about the fairness doctrine, for example, but that was only in an era where media was scarce. And now we live in this age of endless abundance, right? I just don't think it's possible to enact any of those sorts of guidelines. It's it's barely possible for the government to even enforce 
the broadcast uh, regulations that, that, that already exist. Um, so I, I don't think it's possible. Uh, is cable news a net positive? Um, it is. Oh, gosh, that's so hard because if I could take Fox News out of it, it's easy for me to say yes. But Fox News is the largest cable network in the United States. Um, and it's poisoned a lot of people's brains. Um, I think I have to say it's a net positive because it can it can always be better. These channels can always be made to be better. Um, Sean Hannity, for example, is doing something really exciting tonight. He has Gavin Newsom versus Ron DeSantis, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, live from Georgia. It's going to be incredible. Uh, I'm staying up late. Uh, a genuine, a genuine public service. You're, you're, a real you're, debate. You're... I mean, it, it's the. It's the debate that a lot of us wish we could have in 2024. Uh, it's a younger generation of politicians that a lot of us wish we could see uh, on the debate uh, uh, on general election stage. Anyway, I just think that is actually compelling, original TV. Thank you, Sean, for making it happen. So <laughs> whenever I want to give up on the medium and say, oh, you know, like Fox is just pure propaganda and they're hurting everybody's uh, grandparents. No, because Here's an interesting debate between Newsom and DeSantis. And then I think more broadly, here's what I always felt when I would walk into CNN. The tools are incredible. The control rooms are so powerful. The, the ability to reach millions of people is so powerful. It's all in how you use it. It's all in how it's used, right? We can spend an hour that's really nutritionally rich, full of journalism, full of information, full of light, not darkness. Um, or you can spend an hour just trash, right? Just nonsense, garbage, lies, you know, dominion stuff. You know, so ultimately, like, that's why it's net positive, because the potential is there. The power is there. Um, and, you know, not every show of mine was was perfect. You know, there was, I like to say in television, it's like a Venn diagram. There's journalism over here and there's television over here. And some, <laughs> hopefully, there's a lot in the middle. Hopefully, every episode, you're getting both right in the middle. But sometimes, I was just doing television, man. And one day, Richard Branson was lifting off into space, and it happened to be during the hour I was on CNN. And my entire hour was taken over by, by the space launch. And I don't regret it because it was great TV. And honestly, it was a break from the, the, the dire news around the world. I right? understand. Want, we, can, we, can, we can spare that hour for a beautiful image of a, of a space launch. Let me ask um, you a similar question. You don't confine yourself uh, uh, to, to broadcast. Um, I've noticed that you are not one of these uh, uh, journalists, public journalists who has given up Twitter. You're still on Twitter. Oh, gosh. Um, Same thing with Twitter. It's like it's it's a cesspool. Yeah, it is. Elon Musk is a force for misinformation, disinformation. But if I give up what little power I have on there, reaching whatever number of people I reach, then I'm not I'm not trying to make it any better anymore. Very last, uh, very last question. If, if um, you know, I've already shared with you and with everyone watching that I, I, I thought you wrote a really fine book. And my, my biggest criticism or the biggest downer for me, and I wonder how it affected you, is that other than you, by the way, I couldn't find anybody to like in this book, and that um, <laughs> it, it, it left me with a bad feeling as I turned out my light, my light at, at night, and, and, and went to sleep. I was like, ugh, I'm sick mm. of these people. What about you? Hmm. Huh. Am I sick of these people? <laughs> um, I still watch a lot and I'm still, I'm still curious. Like, I'm still intrigued. I still, I want to know even more about what motivates them. I think we learned a lot through the Dominion filings. I think we know about the, the desire to get higher ratings and the bottom line and all of that. But um, I'm still, I, I, I look at I look at this and I look at Fox and I look at Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and these figures and I think to myself they are the beating heart of the GOP. And it's a heart that is that's seen better days, that the arteries are corroded, it's probably a heart in need of surgery. But it's still they, they're still pushing blood out to the entire body all throughout the Republican party. Um, off to the fringes and off to the moderates and everyone from the Liz Cheney's to the Matt Gates's, right? Like it is still this power center. It's still what's keeping the GOP pumping. And uh, people like Liz Cheney are literally trying to give it a transplant, right? They, they, they are fighting the good fight. She has a, a book coming out next week. She's going to be in the news all over the place. There are a lot of people who are trying to resist the, the poison and the propaganda and the information pollution. A lot of people in the party, a lot of people, you know, uh, around Fox, even a few that work at Fox. Um, 
So it's very much a live issue. It's very much, this is, this is not a, a dead body. Like this is a live thing. This heart is still beating. And in some ways, again, making things worse, uh, you know, gosh, the Republican party's chaos in the house, the Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson, a lot of that's influenced by the misinformation on Fox and the broken incentive structures of Fox news. So, you can tell as I'm talking about it, I still get fired up about it. I still yeah. think it matters a lot. Yeah. I still think it affects all of us. I think it affects our society and our debates and our politics. And then every so often when it gets really depressing, I think, oh, you know what? Newsom versus DeSantis. That's going to be worth watching. <laughs> like that's a debate that I want to engage in. I want to be a part of that. Like let's, let's, let's have a better politics. Um, I'm on, I might be on California's side for the record, but you know, let's, let's have the argument. Let's go see. And Maybe that's why I keep watching. Well, Brian, uh, thank you. Author of Network of Lies, The Epic Saga, Fox News, Donald Trump, and the Battle for American Democracy. We encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Brian's new book at your local bookstore or wherever you buy books. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm Adam Lashinsky. Thank you and take care and please imagine a gavel coming down right now. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.